I'm Rebecca, and I'm a Quinn slash Paula. I'm Carolyn, and I'm an Armand slash Tanya. I'm Teresa, and I'm a Nicole slash Olivia, and we are Big Little Podcast, back with a special episode to talk about HBO's latest show in the Big Little Lies mold, The White Lotus, and to tell you what our next real season is going to be about. So, in short, The White Lotus is a show about a bunch of rich Americans visiting a posh Hawaiian resort. The goal is to disappear behind our masks as pleasant, interchangeable helpers. It's tropical kabuki. Aloha. A happy beer. We're on our honeymoon. You're such valued guests. Welcome to the White Lotus. Are they bigger? Nicole, they're fucking huge. I haven't seen them in a while. It's cancer. Swole balls. Did they biopsy your balls, Doc? Not yet. Mom! Am I interrupting? I know it's only your honeymoon. Oh my God, look at her face. Rachel, you were such a beautiful bride, but also very pale. But now you have a little more color and it looks great. Thanks. You are so talented. Do you really know what you're doing? You think you could have dinner with me at the hotel tonight? Um, I, I get off at seven. Yeah, that's good. I mean, like a couple minutes after seven at the at the restaurant. Sounds great. Being a young man, this time right now can't be easy. Why? Because we can't harass girls anymore? No. Well. He thinks I'm an asshole. Were you an asshole? I guess I'm just wondering what um, you might be able to do for us to make us feel better. No, I was actually trying to not be an asshole. That you failed? I just walked around. Please enjoy. Belinda is the best. Dude, I'll make an appointment. If she's not booked with me. Sometimes just watching them eat every night makes me want to gouge my eyes out. Belinda! Belinda! What I want is to speak to your boss. I don't think it's the most romantic hotel in Hawaii, do you? It's perfectly fine, but are you finding it very romantic? Okay. Nice. We're only doing one episode about the White Lotus because we already had our sights set on Nine Perfect Strangers, Hulu's show based on Leanne Moriarty's book about a bunch of rich people visiting an Australian wellness resort. I'm on my way to that health retreat I was telling you about. Apparently, I'm in need of some fixing. Welcome to Tranquillum House. We're going to get you well. This is going to be the best thing. It has to be. Are you happy with your life? We're not in a good place. Either we try or we don't. It's very intimate here. And how many guests are there? Nine total. I'm not sure I'm really supposed to be here. Some doors are meant to stay closed. Have you met her? The woman that runs it? She mixes and matches her guests like a cocktail. Supposedly, she completely changes people. You came here to heal. 
gonna be a wonderful journey. Sometimes it'll be unpleasant. I don't want to suffer. You're already suffering. I've been feeling unlike myself. There is nothing to fear. You're mine now. We've only got room and time for one season about people at a resort, so we're giving short shrift to White Lotus and heading over to Tranquillum House, even if Nicole Kidman's accent seems particularly obtrusive in this trailer. (laughs) All right, so let's head on over to the White Lotus. Warning, spoilers abound, so if you haven't finished the series yet, this may not be the time to listen to the episode. All right, well, let's start by talking about some of the pages this show took right out of the Big Little Lies playbook. Um, The big one is the fact that this show opens with the knowledge that someone is dead, but we don't know who. Um, Rebecca, what did you think about, you know, the sort of reuse of that little trope? I mean, this is one of my favorite tropes. I think it's a really great way to build suspense and tell you exactly how high the stakes are before actually getting into any of that. And you know, for the bulk of this series, the stakes were quite low. And that's part of where the like the comedy dramedy comes from mm-hmm. is that it's just like white people problems and the people that have to just like be put upon to deal with white people problems. So the fact that, you know, it's building towards a death really does kind of contribute to that low grade suspense. And mm-hmm. again, stakes are low, not a lot happening. But in that last episode, I was like chewing my fingernails to a quick because I was like, someone's <laughs> still got to die. Who's it going to be? Who's got the target on their back? So, yeah, I thought it worked really well. What did you think, Carolyn? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was a great tactic to pull you into this show that could have otherwise sort of had a slower start. Um, And, you know, it it kind of helped establish that Shane is a douchebag right away, Mm -hmm. uh, which was nice. Like, you could... (laughs) really go into this with no expectations for him to be any sort of person that you liked. And it also kind of helps set up that, like, none of these are people that you're going to like. Uh, and which then is a, kind of an interesting thing when you're like, well, which one of these assholes is going to end up dead? Yo, well, speaking of that, you know, if we were doing this week by week, we would be um, doing the, like, which, which which person does this episode want you to think is dead thing? But I don't think that really works when we're doing one episode. So... Who, like, throughout this series, Carolyn, did you think was most likely to end up dead? Honestly, I was convinced it was going to be Molly Shannon, like Shane's mother. Hmm. I don't, Interesting. Yeah, so I thought it was going to be, because he's such, like, a mama's boy, and then, like, when she showed up, and I was, like, so I guess it wasn't right from the get-go, but from the point that she, you know, started calling and then showed up I was convinced that like he was sitting there in the airport being like a whiny cranky mess because mommy had died and the wife had left him so that's Mm. what I was really thinking was going to happen up until the last episode but the last episode I did know it was going to be Armand really okay Mm -hmm. so Rebecca what about you who was your number one pick to end up dead well I think the undoing kind of ruined me (laughs) <laughs> and but in more ways than one, 
because mm-hmm. I, from the jump, was like, it's going to be Rachel. It's going to be the obvious choice that they want to mm-hmm. set you up to believe because he's all, you know, down about his honeymoon. He's looking out and the, the coffin's being loaded in. And I was like, they're going to play all these games that all these shows do to make me think it's everybody but Rachel. Mm-hmm. And then the, the sadder and sadder she got, I was like, oh, God, she's going to kill herself in some dramatic way or he's going to kill her. I thought maybe it's going to take like a crazy turn into domestic violence land, which I do think they in those last two episodes kind of like alluded to that Shane like had the potential to be abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was thinking like I kept going back to that. But then as I started to kind of think like, all right, maybe they are. This is just a, the fake out that it was very clearly intended to be from the jump. I really ran the gamut of people it could be. Like, I thought when it was uh, Steve Zan having the whole epiphany about his father being gay, that he was going to go do something crazy and die in some, you know, hapless way. I Well, yeah, but, you know, they're very clear that it's a murder at the beginning. That was the thing that kept me, like, from, you know, like, Are Shane they? is the person. Yeah, she, they- she says, wasn't someone murdered? Oh, I thought no, it was. No, she wasn't says that I heard die. somebody was killed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think it was killed because I didn't hear murder. But maybe, I mean, I, I okay. should go back and listen. But mm-hmm. but I knew, I felt very strongly that it had to be somebody connected to Shane. Because otherwise he wouldn't mm-hmm. have cared enough to be standing there watching them load a body into an airplane. Yeah. So I agree that they were kind of setting you up that it could be Rachel. But I had a, I was like, mm, I feel like that's too obvious. And I was really hopeful mm-hmm. that this wasn't the undoing and wasn't the obvious <laughs> choice. Um, and it sure was not. No. Yeah. Holy moly. <laughs> no. I, and, and I also felt like they really weren't going to be taking us that down that road once like all the other choices the show started making began to unfold. I was like, oh, it's not going to be Rachel for sure. The show was way too wild. Yeah, I mean, so the show had a lot in common with Big Little Lies and including like lots of beautiful beachy scenery and characters you kind of love to hate and this like completely stacked cast of like people you love, right? Like Connie Britton, Steve Zahn, Molly Shannon, Jennifer Coolidge, is Armand's name Murray Bartlett? I think I think that's his real name. And even though I have no idea who he is, everyone else seems to know who he was and love him. And I think, like, th- one of the things that sort of sets this apart from Big Little Lies and it, sort of going down that, you know, the show is wild front, Carolyn, is that this seems a little bit more deliberately comic to me than Big Little Lies. Mm-hmm. Um it's just like the various crises that characters are having are like more absurd and funny, right? Than the domestic abuse and underlying sexual assault that were at the heart of Big Little Lies. In this one, we've got Steve Zahn and his testicular cancer slash his closeted dad and Shane's completely bonkers obsession with not having gotten the right hotel. With the pineapple suite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Put some respect on his name. The man just wants to be in the pineapple suites. That's so hard. You know, our our friend Rebecca Lavoy um, from the Crime Writers On podcast, you know, she was tweeting about <laughs> tweeting about the show and she was like, first of all, I prefer a beach 
a an ocean view to yeah. a plunge pool and a deck any day any of the day. week. And I was like, what even is a plunge pool, I know. Shane? And we I, never like even a got pool to you see can't it. Swim in? Well, I was pissed about and that. And did you notice was, that the true. pineapple room was actually not as nice as the other room? There was a distinct you mm-hmm. it, you definitely got the sense the in the way it was shot. Like even the bedroom looked less nice. Uh, that mm-hmm. was something I noticed. I was like, oh, this sucker. <laughs> Yeah, it looked a little bit darker mm-hmm. and like like it hadn't been updated as recently or something. You know, there was like a lot of old wooden louver looking things instead of like the bright airiness of the first room. Yeah. Yeah, he played himself in more ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> but how did you feel about this? Was it, Did you feel like the show was like a little bit deliberately more silly? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can't cast Jennifer Coolidge and not expect it to have that, like, campy (laughs) silliness. Like, I think Uh the casting was very, very deliberate. There's a lot of strong comedic actors. You know, having Molly Shannon essentially make a one-episode cameo, two-episode cameo is a pretty bold move if you're not going to lean into the comedic elements of it. But I... Go ahead, Carolyn. Well, I was going to say that Jennifer Coolidge, like, we have to talk about her for a good little minute here. (laughs) Because... So, she's an actress who... I am, like, fascinated by, because her line delivery, as every character, is always the same. And it's always like she either doesn't know her lines, or she just is fucking with you in some, like, she just is so fascinating to me. And she is just funny. Like, literally, she could stand on screen Mm -hmm. and just, like, utter a little tiny noise, and I find it hilarious and intriguing. And this is the first time I've ever seen her kind of get to be stretched into a more dramatic, like, yes, this this show is, like, all camp and is definitely a comedy, a dark comedy, but a comedy. But in this, she is the first time I've seen her stretched into a more dramatic uh, role. And I was really into, there are moments where she actually tugs at you. And uh, there, there are parts of her zaniness that are kind of relatable and tragic. So for me, she was like the standout. And if anything in the show was going to get nominated, which I think would be a stretch, but honestly, I'd love to see her get like an Emmy nomination or even just like, well, the Golden Globes are problematic, so I don't really care about those, but some sort of acknowledgement and recognition for her performance in this because her caftan-wearing, drunken lady character in this is so brilliant that I am like, I am now an even bigger Jen Coolidge fan. I was really, you know, in the beginning, I was like, this is really strange casting because Jennifer Coolidge is so associated with me with sort of like completely absurd characters from, you know, um, Michael Guest movies, mm-hmm. basically. Christopher Guest, yeah. That Yes, sorry, Christopher Guest movies. Um, that I I was kind of like, this is this is a little weird. And it wasn't until we started to get further into her character arc where you know we understand that she's really kind of. I think she refers to herself as like a lunatic alcoholic at one point, <laughs> and you start to see her. Um, kind of try to pull herself out of that and become a more normal, quote-unquote, normal person and um, connect with someone that you really, that I really understood why they had casted her. Um, Because it's almost, there are times where, like, I, I too, really like her performance and I think she's great and she, she can 
she can't not be funny most of the time, which is what I was kind of like, oh, that's a little odd because she's so far on the humor spectrum that it's hard to take her serious on the uh, on the dramatic end. But she really pulled it off in the end. Yeah, I I think that this was uh, a game changing performance for her as mm-hmm. an actor where we're going to really be able to see her do more. But like I said, she stayed true to her Jen Coolidge, you know, style of acting. She could teach a master class in that. It's fascinating. I mean, I think it's across the board really interesting that the casting kind of reflects the archetypes that a lot of these actors play. Like, Mm -hmm. Teresa and I have talked a lot about how, is Connie Britton a good actress or a bad actress? Or is she just playing the same, like, version of the same role? Like, Tammy Taylor, basically, in different Mm -hmm. iterations. And I felt like there were shades of that here like kind of the mother that's trying to be a good mother that's got a lot of other stuff going on is kind of exasperated I feel that way with Molly Shannon all of these kind of like quirky gossipy roles that are in your face and uh, sort of cloying you got obviously Mm -hmm. Jennifer Coolidge is doing like a play on what she does seemingly all the time Steve Zahn feels like this is another iteration of the same character we see him playing. I even feel this way with Sydney Sweeney, the actress who plays um, Olivia. She's also in Euphoria, and this feels like an, an extension of that character. Like, I just felt like they were, these are archetypes that we're mm. seeing. And the whole mm. show is about the clash of archetypes and, you know, historical conflict, colonialism, like oblivious white people that are trying to be woke but are failing spectacularly so I felt like in a way the casting reflected that like it was sort of like these emblematic actors playing out it almost felt like a play to me at times I think that's what I'm trying to say like really almost overdrawn characters that aren't individuals so much as they are archetypal I see that for sure and going back to the Connie Britton thing I I agree that she kind of tends to play the same character she does it solidly you know you enjoy looking at her (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh you know she does she does a fine job all I was obsessed with though throughout watching this was thinking about how she and Renata are probably best friends or enemies (laughs) but I somehow pictured them like meeting up in the Hamptons together but Nicole is more like bless your heart Renata no but that's why I feel like they could get along because they're you know if, if like two Renatas would kill each other but a Renata, Renata is Nicole. on the board of Nicole's company. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. That feels right. Yeah. <laughs> I just, that feels, I, can we get a spinoff? Like, I want to see Renata and Nicole back at the White Lotus, post both of their divorces, flirting with the pool boys. Give it to me. So you sort of started already alluding to this, Rebecca. So let's jump into it. Because to me, this is a show that is like almost at first I was like, what is this? The first time I watched the first (laughs) episode and then I went back and I was like, oh, this is just a show about power dynamics Mm -hmm. and the many, many ways they play out among the all these different kinds of people. Right. So we've got like there originally there we kind of get the guests versus the staff and then there's interfamily power dynamics with olivia and quinn who is just like olivia's a nightmare person and poor quinn like even though he kind kind of comes off as unhinged at times you're like yeah wouldn't you be if someone treated you this yeah. way every day and you know and then there's the um stuff going on between shane and rachel as she's trying to figure out her place in this marriage and and outside of the marriage and then 
and then we start getting into the bigger stuff with race and class and the resort versus the locals. And I just found it all to be a really, really interesting study that I think Mike White, the creator of the show, does this kind of thing really well where he explores these um, because he also created the show Enlightened with Laura Dern, which, you know, is hilariously bizarre. And um, he really explores these bigger topics in a way that makes them really palatable for people, I think, and makes them entertaining so that you're not just like, oh, God, is this a Ken Burns documentary about power? Or, you know, I think, how did you think all of those different things work together, Carolyn? I I thought that that was kind of what gave the show any sort of cred. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think in, in including this interesting, all of these power struggles and dynamics, it made it a much more interesting show than just kind of the frothy, pretty, little whodunit kind of show that it, it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was episode four, maybe, that got, like, a little bit chewy with it. Like, it they were really pushing that. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it That episode, I, I felt like, was where they really, in the pacing, it kind of had too much of that came to head in that episode. I think it should have spread mm-hmm. it out a little bit more. Because um, I believe that's where you had Paula learn that Kai, his family, had land taken from them. And... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had Molly Shannon there with Shane and uh, what is what is uh, Rachel? Rachel, thank you. But so and and all of those things kind of really sort of climaxed in that episode. But I would have liked to have seen that sort of spread out more rather than have this really uh, like dense episode there that kind of was like everyone think about these dynamics of class and power and. Uh, it, that, that to me needed a little finessing, but other than that, I really enjoyed how this made you look at all of those, you know, kind of all of, all of that for these characters and how it, and where we're at in the world and everything. I just thought it worked really well. I think part of what was interesting and Rebecca, feel free to disagree with me, um, being a Paula Um, (laughs) but like I think one of the interesting things is like it doesn't come down on anybody's side really which is the kind of kind of thing I love because you know as clueless as the Mossbacher you know um, Connie Britton and Steve Zahn's couple um, seem at times you also understand why Connie Britton is like defending her creepy son again yeah. you know or against her even worse daughter and like as eye rolly as some of the things they say are and you get why the teenage girls are kind of exasperated with them the teenage girls are so horrible that you don't really uh, you don't really yeah necessarily want to side with them either and even though you might agree with them to some extent you're like oh god do you have to be this obnoxious about it right. and then and then Paula goes so far over the top in trying to sort of rectify these wrongs that have been committed against Kai and his family. Reparations. And, mm-hmm. Paula yes. took it into our own hands. Yeah. But she gets him arrested. Yeah. You know Classic what I mean? Paula. Like, yeah. 
<laughs> I think that the, so just to step one step back here with the power dynamics, for me, the two that were the most effective were two that were mm-hmm. there from the beginning and were the two more subtle dynamics. And that was between Belinda and, um, Mm-hmm. and Jennifer Kula, what is Tanya. her name? Tanya. Tanya. And um, Paula and Olivia. And I think that the yeah. the power struggle between these two woke, educated college students that are basically trying to like outwoke everybody else, but also are engaging mm-hmm. in this like very petty, not very feminist, interpersonal, like back and forth mm-hmm. about like who's stealing whose guy. Like it, it, that's what's really underpinning all of what this, like this put upon... Uh, social justice and olivia as woke as she wants to be is treating her friend who is i we have she so paula is a person of color it's not really clear what ethnicity she is i don't think but um but she's also i i think we're meant to assume she is in even though she herself is privileged and going to the same college as as Olivia, we can assume her family isn't as rich as the Mossbachers, and Olivia is exercising her power over her in a lot of ways that she's not acknowledging. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I forget which review um, I read this in. It might have been Vulture, or it was maybe Slate, where he said that he felt like the girls, um, all of this reading they're doing, this like very like collegiate, like look what I'm reading. Yeah. I'm reading Descartes. I'm reading Lacan. <laughs> whatever. Um, he was like, I feel like they're making the sounds of the words in their heads, but aren't actually understanding. Mm-hmm. And to me, like that really sums up that weird, like early 20s stage where you think just you're, you're consuming all of this stuff that you're so much, you've transcended all the other adults around you, but you understand so little of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, that's the, you know, the parents kind of eye rolling, like, and maybe this is just a consequence of getting older. Like I was far more relating to them being like, God, this is exhausting. Like this is they're just speaking what they think is correct without actually internalizing and processing what it means to dismantle, you know, institutionalized racism and colonialism. Like Paula's grasp at doing this, she thinks like, an out, well, we got to steal the bracelets from the rich woman and give them <laughs> yeah. to the Hawaiian boy. And then we we solved racism. We did it, guys. Like, it's like, no, Paula, this is not how this works. Like, I appreciate your heart is in the right place and you're moving in the right direction, but you're, it's just, they're so naive and, and innocent and ignorant. And I think innocence and ignorance like are two sides of the same coin that often are interchangeable without us meaning to. But like really, mm-hmm. that's all the characters in this show. Yeah. All of the characters yeah. in this show make naive and ignorant, misguided attempts to solve their problems. But I wouldn't classify anyone except for Shane really as a bad person. Like, well, I don't think anyone here is reprehensible. Right. I think they're they're very emblematic of how actual people are and that we're trying to be better and understand, but we often are just flailing in the water. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I would agree. They're not they're not bad people, but they're they are unfortunately just constant, you know, like all of us, you make bad decisions. Um, and uh, it. It all like the one thing the show did really well, and I think that the soundtrack for me really helped with this. We have got to talk about the sound engineering. Yeah, oh my God. but this, holy moly, but the like bringing everything to a boiling point, whether it yeah. be in mm-hmm. each episode or in the arc as a whole, like you would get every episode had me like on feeling so on edge with the decision being made or like you know, just how, just the character, that, like, trapped sensation, which is, you know, you're on an island. 
the, that you are mm-hmm. physically trapped. And so there was this certain sense of like claustrophobia that you got there. And with this, mm-hmm. and I, to me, like I kind of was living for that like roller coaster ride, that thrill ride of feeling like, kind of like the same thing as like a horror movie this was this had yeah. that same the suspense rush. the music created was unreal mm-hmm. so the that music so my partner brian was not watching this with me and multiple times while i was watching the show he would come into the room and just be like what is happening in here this music is insane and it is driving me nuts like what it, and it's very it's very interesting i mean it's like this combination of sort of you know, native Hawaiian like throat drumming singing. and throats. Yeah. I mean, there is all sorts of stuff happening with this music. It's so, I thought at first it was like trying to mimic the disorienting, the disorienting feeling of being on vacation mm-hmm. and that like insular, like hot, you know how you just sometimes feel like, like you're at once like more yourself and as far removed from yourself as possible on vacation. Like it, it mm-hmm. iterates yourself down to your most like, essential essence but you're also in a different time you're in a new place you're in a in a space that's not your own so i think it like mimicked that but i also think it really really worked to kind of like make you feel that fevery discomfort of these characters interacting with each other and it enhanced Mm -hmm. the acting and i think it's really really cool when music becomes its own character in the show and i felt that there were so many little subtle things the music did to kind of underscore the the plot and what you're supposed to take away. I think one of the best instances of this is the last scene when Quinn is paddling away off to live a better life. Mm-hmm. It transitions very seamlessly from this like native Hawaiian music to Hallelujah, yeah. Which like mm-hmm. again like talk about like the whitest white savior song <laughs> of all time. <laughs> it's like it's just there's so much little stuff that like the music was able to accomplish that I thought made made it such a better show and I don't know if I would have liked this show as much if the music hadn't been really kind of steering my emotions through it I followed the music all throughout I I noticed it right away from the first episode uh and I was like wow this is doing that like Sopranos thing where it's really kind of uh taking this music and making it a character and uh it it was interesting because that last the last episode the music got much more like chorale based and also mm-hmm. like religious. There was like much more religious mm-hmm. undertone to the music in the last episode than there had been in the others. Um, so that was an interesting choice to me. But overall, I agree with what you said, Rebecca, that like it kind of, the music sort of had that, uh, it, it, it transported you to this place and kind of was could be a little bit disorienting sometimes. Like they would combine it with those shots of the water just overpowering you, like waves and underwater shots. Yeah. Also from the Big Little Lies playbook, just mm-hmm. random shots. I was just of about water. to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and even you know, Big Little Lies has the haunting theme music that you can't get out of your head, and that's the same with this. This theme song just would, you know pop into my head throughout the week randomly over the past couple weeks. <laughs> and it was effective in the way the Undoing theme song was not. And that the Undoing theme song, mm-hmm. you were like, what is this? This is going to be some clue. And then it was just literally nothing. But the mm-hmm. music felt really, really meaningful. Like it mm-hmm. was absolutely part of Mike White's vision for this show. This was not just about the set scenery and characters. Like this is a sonic experience too. And I think like 
you know, when you're watching a show, it's it's your eyes and your ears. Those are your senses that are engaging. And I think oftentimes we neglect how important sound is and beyond voice. And I thought they did a fantastic job. It's one of my favorite elements of this show. And talk about Emmy. Like, that's what they should get an Emmy for is sound design. <laughs> yeah. We should be lucky that... Uh sight and sound are the only senses we had for this show. Uh, Carolyn, great transition. We Let's could have to shit her I the world. I was thinking of you because our adventures in podcasting started with an attempt to make a podcast about Carolyn's neighborhood pooper who poops in everybody's <laughs> cars. And that kind of died because it really were one after interviewing the one victim of the pooper we had really nowhere to go but when i didn't realize you guys actually conducted an interview oh we did drop the episode like give the people what they want um if we can find it we can try um but so when armand so so let's talk let's just talk about this armand is the one who ends up dead when he, okay. after going on a binge with the drugs he stole from the Mossbacher kids, and he decides to sneak into the pineapple suite and poop in Shane's suitcase. <laughs> First of all, it was very realistic. And I have so I many want questions. to know how they yeah. made it happen. How, like, <laughs> how did they do it? I think the, he was shitting for real on camera. No. <laughs> no, I'm No serious. way, Carolyn. The, I feel like that would get an NC-17 rating or something. Well, I mean, it happened. There is, I, I really think, I'm like, yep, he method acted that. I, I don't know. I tried to research it because I was convinced that that was CGI. like a, I <laughs> CGI. I don't know. Poop. But it was amazing. I was cheering. Alex and I were watching this. And when that happened, we literally just like jumped off the couch and were like clapping um, I, it, that was, that was such an epic moment and so unexpected, so wonderful. Although I knew I was like, oh, he's going to die. The minute he went into that suite, mm-hmm. I'm like, Chekhov's pineapple knife is mm-hmm. coming yeah. for our mom. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wow. Poor, poor. I, I don't have any, any feelings on this other than I was shocked that HBO, I mean, HBO really went there between, uh, shitting on TV and F boy Island, HBO is swinging for the fences. Well, I mean, do, do we think like Murray Bartlett was just like, okay guys, I got to poop. We got to shoot the scene now. Yeah. I'm telling you, I think he just, they were like, yeah, have some coffee. And when you're ready or to cocaine, go. maybe he method acted the whole way. I mean, that's another effect <laughs> of cocaine. Well, I do know that he and the actor who played, um, his young, uh, the, the young hotel guy, his boy toy. Mm-hmm. His boy toy? His boy toy. Um, Mm -hmm. They together came up with the fact that they were going to have that, like... Oh, yeah. Butt munch scene. Rather than... uh, Because it was not... That wasn't written in the script. Um, Mm -hmm. They... The the two of them came up with that and proposed it and said that we think this will be a more effective, memorable... We think it fits the character's... Uh, mm-hmm. and I love that. I love that those actors like pushed that scene and pushed themselves and did that. Cause I do think it really, it, it gave impact. It sure did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not since girls when, uh, when Brian Williams daughter got her butt ate out on TV, have I seen such a, such a thing on the screen? <laughs> Some Murphy Browning. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> oh, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> I have more if you need them. <laughs> Good griefs. So I I, ha- I feel like I have a slightly controversial opinion in that 
and maybe not, but um, I feel like Quinn Mossbacher might be the hero <laughs> of this show if there is one. And I think we're set up to kind of most closely identify with Rachel. She is like kind of trying to tame the beast that is Shane while wrestling with her own like sense of identity and keeping her independence and trying to be a normal, decent human being while being married to this nightmare man. But then instead of dumping him, like we hope she does, she goes back to him. She shows up in in the airport at the end. And even though she's crying while saying it, she says she thinks she can be happy and she gets back together with this guy who just killed their the poor concierge the manager of this hotel but don't we all know uh, this woman is this not oh like, yeah everyone mm-hmm. has like eight of these as a friend like you're just like why are you doing this i don't understand you were just saying how you wanted your independence and all this stuff and now you're gonna go back to douche canoe jenkins who just straight up killed a man <laughs> like that to me almost ruined this show I, as ecstatic Mm -hmm. and happy as I was when Armand took a dump in Shane's suitcase, when Rachel went back to Shane at that airport, I wanted to, like, throw my wine glass at the TV. But she didn't Mm -hmm. learn anything. And that's the thing. Like, I feel like this is the show isn't about giving you those satisfying moments. It's about, like, reality. And the whole, like, her going to Belinda and being, like, dumping her trauma on Belinda and asking Belinda for advice. It's like, Rachel hadn't actually done any of the quote-unquote work to be independent. She just has decided in her head, she said the words in her mind, but didn't actually like understand what they meant. So then when she realizes like, well, shoot, I'm on my own now. She's like, actually, I don't want to do this. I want to mm-hmm. go back to Shane. Like we, we all know this person. I also don't get the vibe that Quinn, as much as that we're excited for him, that he's escaped. Like, you know, his parents are going to be on the next flight or maybe not even like stay on that flight. Right. And haul his ass back. So like, it, well, it they wasn't have to find him like, first. Cause remember he doesn't have a phone. I'm sure, like, they would track him down. It's two very influential, wealthy white people in Hawaii as an island. Yeah, I mean, he's going to end up, like, he's going to do this canoe trip, and, like, then he's going to be like, oh, now what do I do? And he's going to end up back with his family. But I I still feel like he's the only one who actually learned anything about himself on this trip. Exactly. Exactly. And, like... In part of in part of that is because he was bullied so severely by his own sister that he has to sleep on the beach at yeah. night. <laughs> that he's the only one who actually has any kind of real Hawaiian experience, right? Like he's the one who's out there at night and sees whales jumping all yeah. over the place, and then he's the one who, not you know, as much as Paula might like to think she is, she's just you know she's just having a quick affair with a guy at a resort and sort know? of fetishizing him. Yeah, yeah like, I'm going to fix you, poor colonial native boy, because I'm going to, like, show you the way. And he's kind of like, ah, I'm fine with this situation. It is what it is. She's like, no. I mean, I think that absolutely Quinn is the only one that actually gets an authentic or close mm-hmm. to authentic, as close as a white person can get, experience mm-hmm. about what it's like to actually live in Hawaii as a real person. Mm-hmm. And, like, he is, you know, he, him and Tanya, Quinn and Tanya are probably the most lost at the Mm -hmm. beginning of this episode. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones who kind of get their stuff together the most by the end or or by the end of the season. And if you told me I'd be rooting for like drunk Jennifer Coolidge and masturbating Nintendo Twitch teen (laughs) in the beginning, I'd have been like, get out of here. Like these are probably my least two favorite characters in the beginning. And by Mm -hmm. the end, like you really are rooting for them and you do feel like they've 
grown. And I feel like there's also kind of an argument with Quinn with the testament of innocence and like how he has the most potential to change. Unlike Mm -hmm. even the like college teens feel like they've already like picked their lanes and are going to stick in them. But like Quinn feels the most elastic and the most like free in a way. And I feel like there's sort of a commentary and this, this was sort of what Rachel was grappling with too, about how adulthood pens you in and Mm -hmm. you know, the adults are being like, Quinn, you can't stay in Hawaii. Like what about school? What about this? And Quinn's like, well, why not? Like the world has got so much potential for him still. And I thought that that was a really Mm -hmm. like optimistic, nice way to look at youth. And as much as like he's getting dragged back to the United States eventually, like it it is a nice (laughs) idea that for a moment, this boy is able to find something close to freedom. It's either that or he ends up like on an episode of Dog the Bounty Hunter yes. being chased down because he's become like a meth dealer to support himself. For, yes, which, you know, season two, it just got renewed. <laughs> but they, so there's this, um, I, I am not a sports person, but I love a good 30 for 30 documentary. They are so good. And there's one about a guy named Eddie Aikau who was like one of the um, sort of legendary big wave surfers from Hawaii and one of the first um, lifeguards at one of the beaches there. And he tried to go on a very similar canoe trip to what Quinn is embarking on at the end of this, except it was much longer. It was like, um, they were basically trying to retrace how people got to the Hawaiian islands in the first place. So I think they were going, I don't remember exactly where, but basically like Polynesia or something like French Polynesia or something and a storm kicks up and almost as soon as they leave and they all get dumped into the drink and things happen from there but it was that's all I could think about when Quinn's getting on this boat and like heading for a different island I was like oh man Quinn you should watch that 30 for 30 documentary (laughs) this this may not end well for you (laughs) Carolyn did you like Quinn or were you on like like this guy is you know, team incel. You know what? I I did like him, even from the beginning. Like, even though he was this, like, weird little masturbating teen boy who just wanted to play with his electronics, I found him to be, like, sympathetic and real because of that. And the rest mm-hmm. of his family was so fucking annoying and self-involved. Yeah. Like, I felt sorry for him from the beginning. Like, his sister is making him sleep in a closet uh or the kitchenette no it's a kitchen it's but but it's the size of a closet yeah so i also found that all too relatable because my family uh has traveled to resorts for vacations you know since i was a kid and i remember being a teenager and like you know they you get like a sweet room and it has a fold-out bed and you're supposed to like share it with your brother and you're like no dude you're gonna just sleep on that chair i get the whole bed to myself so I totally related to that moment where when Olivia is like sends him to sleep in there, um, and I, the when he moves himself out to the beach, mm-hmm. and I loved watching him have this kind of like spiritual awakening, and I knew that he was gonna make some sort of decision. Like I was like, oh, he's gonna want to stay here. He's gonna. Uh, I, I, I thought that the Quinn, I also really like that young actor. He's been in a lot of things recently. I feel like I keep seeing him. And he's another actor who I just find really fascinating. He was in uh, Woman in the Window, which was an absolutely horrible Netflix mm-hmm. movie that adapted a really good book. Um, but he is probably the shining light in that shitty movie. And he's mm-hmm. also in those the Netflix uh, horror movies, The Fear Street, the R.L. Steins. 
Hmm. Oh my. I was really, was anyone else really confused by his age in this show for a while? Because it wasn't really clear to me. For a while I thought he was in college and then, and then, um, Connie Britton's character says, like, you know, I feel really bad for Quinn, you know, young men his age who are just getting out of college, we can't hire them right now kind of thing. And so I was like, oh, is he out of college? And then in the last episode, we find out, no, he's 16 and he's still in high school. And did I miss something early on, uh, early on or was this confusing to anyone else? I always thought he was in high school. I think when Connie Britton was saying the stuff about young men, she was talking more yeah. about, like, young men yeah. generally. And the ones that she's encountering are ones fresh out of college. Mm. Yeah, I got the impression. I could tell he was, like, a young, awkward kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, I, I really, I think, like, he's an actor to watch for sure. I also thought he was really good casting for this because he kind of looked like Steve Zahn. Like, they looked like a really believable father and son to me, too. Yeah, I felt agreed. like the casting agreed. there was really was really well done. All right, guys. So, on a scale of Big Little Lies to The Undoing, where does this show fall in in terms of how you like it compared to the other shows we've watched for this for this podcast carolyn do you want to start for me it would rank better than better than the undoing obviously better Mm -hmm. than little fires everywhere but you know obviously not not quite as jaw-dropping as big little lies it's like a big Mm -hmm. little lies season two maybe Mm. Mm. interesting rebecca i mean the way i rank them is i go big little lies one to undoing Little Fires. Mm. Um, and it's certainly better than Little Fires and The Undoing. And I, I almost think it's better than season two of Big Little Lies. I think it, it really was kind of like a fully realized show. I'm very interested to see where it's going to go for the second season. I kind of always assumed this was always intended to be a miniseries. And I would guess it probably was. And then the reaction was so positive that they are now doing another season and I apparently it's going to be a whole different group of guests which makes a lot of sense so it can almost like take on an anthology-esque quality to it if they keep doing it so I I really liked it I think it's definitely up there with Big Little Lies and I think that fans of the first season of Big Little Lies probably enjoyed this and if you haven't I don't know why you'd be listening to this like a crazy person (laughs) full of spoilers but if for some reason you've listened to this full spoiler episode and haven't seen the white lotus like and you enjoyed big little lies i think you will also very much enjoy the show yeah i think i agree with you rebecca it's probably you know i really have some real problems with season two of big little lies including just like the nonsensical stuff they threw in there. And I think this show, although I don't think I would be inclined to watch this show again, the way I did with big little lies. Yep. Um, I do think it's better than season two and all those other shows that we talked about. Um, and I am interested to see where it goes in season two, because I do think the premise of, you know, a resort has promise because you've, Got, you know, it's like the love boat or um, or Fantasy Island or something where you've just constantly got this this new cast of characters coming in. But, you know, it would sort of become sort of murder she wrote or something if there was a new murder episode <laughs> like every season. So I don't really where you're like, what is Jessica Fletcher doing? Like, why are there so many murders here? Um, 
in Cabot Cove and you'd start to wonder why anyone would go to this resort if people were dying all the time. So So it was my understanding that not only is it a different cast, but it's also going to be a different um a different location. Oh, cool. Oh. Well that's weird. Yeah. It, I mean, unless I guess maybe the White Lotus is supposed to be a like a Ritz a, or something. Yeah, I think like that it's, it's supposed chain, to be but... like a, yeah, like a chain resort. Um, so that, I think, will make it interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I agree. I'm excited to see where they go next with this for sure. I, I'm also kind of interested to think about like the way all the power dynamics play out in this one. Like how do they pick the next location to be able to weave in some of that seamlessly or do they just go a completely di- I would hate to see it go like a completely different direction where you're not thinking about those things and it just becomes yeah. about the crime. Yeah, no, and I think the, they've got to stick and, with that. Yeah, they've got to even if it's not the power dynamics specifically, they have to weave in some more of that underlying social commentary yeah. to to really make it coherent. And I think if Mike White stays at the helm it will. I think he's very good at yeah. working that mm-hmm. in and I, I I'm very excited to see where this goes. So in terms of things we're excited about, um, do we want to do some recommendations since we haven't recommended anything to people in forever? In forever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Carolyn, do you have something you want to recommend? Sure. I have two shows that uh, I've been watching recently. Uh, One of which is kind of, uh, it's sort of like, garbage tv but fun i mean it's the summer like you don't want to right in our wheelhouse then (laughs) yeah and uh it's apparently the second season i never watched the first season of this it's available on that paramount plus streaming service that i Mm -hmm. somehow am accidentally paying for uh but it's a series called why women kill and uh (laughs) it's it's a comedic is the answer just men? Yeah, Pretty is much. it they're fed yeah. up? They're tired it's, of this shit? It's done by Mark Cherry of okay. Desperate Housewives. Uh, so, I was going to say Desperate Housewives. Yeah. Yep. And so it and it's very campy. Uh, it's set in like 1950s Hollywood. Um, the the wardrobe is spectacular. The characters are ridiculous. Um, it's a really fun season. It just, I've heard that season one is actually pretty good too. Lucy Liu is in season one and, um, season one kind of bounces around between a couple different time periods. Uh, season two follows a woman who just wants to get into her garden club and somehow (laughs) that ends in murder everywhere. Just lots of murder. And it's so cheesy and so wonderful. Uh, it, it just, and it has some actually really great lines, like some really witty dialogue, which you expect from like a Mark Cherry, Desperate Housewives, like kind of that, you know, that genre of TV. Uh, so I recommend that. And then the other thing I recommend, uh, Alex got me into it on Netflix. It's a three episode series. It's a retelling of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I believe it was done by BBC and it is really interesting and uh, Van Helsing is a woman and she's also a nun Um, and it is fascinating and totally uh, I think the best the best telling of the Dracula story I've ever seen Um, really really interesting watch it has the right level of like gore and horror but also uh, like a really neat feminist bent to it. 
Uh, so I recommend that as well. Cool. Rebecca, what do you got? So the two recommendations I have are for our many listeners of our Middle Beach mini episode. You guys really loved mm-hmm. that one. It's it's <laughs> blown up far more than any of our other episodes. So I guess true crime really is that bitch. Um, so I've got two podcasts for you. Uh, the first is one that came out in 2018, and I am super late to this party. I know I'm a bad podcast listener, but it is the Dr. Death podcast about mm-hmm. this crazy doctor, this neurosurgeon who is also a PhD named Christopher Dunch, who just straight up like maimed 30 plus people surgically and was just a crazy incompetent doctor, but maybe also like intentionally maiming people. Um, Wild, it gets really into the problems with the healthcare system, specifically the problems with like medical malpractice and reporting doctors and how difficult it is to convict a doctor of murder. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it just is really, really interesting. And I know that they've recently made a television show out of it and it's on Peacock and like who the hell has Peacock but it's starring our our boy Pacey. Yeah. So oh my gosh. eventually I'll and watch it. I hear that. he's very good. I've he heard good, good things about it and Anna Sophia Robb who are both alums of uh, Little Fires Everywhere. So if you have Peacock, check that show out. I can't vouch for that but the podcast is great. Uh, the other podcast I've been listening to that is true crime related is uh, the Murdoch Murders. And I hesitate over Murdoch because the name of this family is literally spelled Murdaw, like murder, which is <laughs> wild. And it's this crazy South Carolina family. It's been in the news recently. Um, a really, really rich family. They're very influential. A bunch of solicitors over the years. They've actually held like attorney general positions since the 20s in this region of South Carolina. And in 2019 the younger son um, was driving a boat drunk and ended up killing one of the passengers in a boat crash. And he and his mother were just murdered, executed on their property in the beginning of June. And it's basically unpacking all the other like crazy cases that this family is tied to, including what very much seems like a hate crime, a murder of a 19 year old gay male from the town. Um, It's really, really interesting. The podcast is called The Murdaugh Murders. I've been going down many Reddit rabbit holes about it. It's just like a fascinating case that's still actively happening, and they haven't solved several of them. So if you're looking for a great true crime wormhole, The Murdoch Murders podcast is very good. I'm going to have to listen to that one. I've never even heard of it. Oh, man, Teresa, this case is wild. Your mind is going to be blown. Mm -hmm. Okay. so I am on a bit of a reading binge this summer. and Good for you, moment, girl. Yeah. yeah. And the, um, the, at the moment, I'm reading another Leanne Moriarty book that oh. someone, that my friend Nancy, who usually listens to this podcast, gave me. It's called The Husband's Secret, which is a terrible name, <laughs> which is why I've had this book for like two years and still haven't given it back to Nancy. She's not so great I'm, at naming her books. No, it's a terrible name. It sounds so cheesy. But if you love Big Little Lies, which I'm assuming you did, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this podcast, (laughs) this is probably the most Big Little Lies-ish book of hers that I've read. Um, So it revolves around a school. This time it's a Catholic school in, um, in Sydney. And there and each chapter is more or less from the point of view of a different person all women and they're all um sort of struggling with so there's one who at the very beginning of of the book finds a note from her husband that is only to be read upon his death 
she kind of stumbles upon it while he's out of town and then she's sort of grappling with whether or not to read it and then eventually she does read it and then there's sort of these other women swirling in her orbit that all come into play for you know in some way and it's just it's the most the I, I, I hesitate to call her the main character because everybody's sort of got their own storyline, but the Cecilia character is very much uh, Madeline Martha McKenzie. And I think if you liked Big Little Lies, you would like this book. So what you're saying is we should prepare for this to be the next season of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to start doing just books, I don't know. I have No, I mean, I'm sure heard... they're going to make it into a television show if they're doing, it sounds ripe for that yeah it does yeah i mean sort of but i have heard no i've i've heard no whisperings about it so i don't know well the it devil works hard but... but reese witherspoon works harder so yeah she sure does <laughs> well so with that um the next leanne moriarty book to be turned into a tv show is nine perfect strangers as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast and it actually starts august 18th so we will be back with new episodes about that show for better or worse <laughs> starting on tuesdays listening to Big Little Podcast. If you enjoy our show, please consider becoming one of our valued podcast supporters at www.thebiglittlepodcast.com or just leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Can't get enough of us? Follow us on social media at Big Little Podcast for exclusive content in between new episodes.